This week's episode of The Obsessive Viewer is sponsored by Westworld FM, the latest podcast from the Midwest Podcast Network. Westworld FM seeks to dissect the latest episode of HBO's Westworld TV series every week. Join Alex and Nick as they take a deep dive into the latest TV show from producers Jonathan Nolan and J.J. Abrams. New episodes of the podcast are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more the day after the TV show airs. Check out the show at westworld.fm or search for Westworld FM on your favorite podcasting service. And thank you to Westworld FM and the Midwest Podcast Network for sponsoring this week's episode. This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Tiny at Obsessive Tiny on Twitter. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a weekly movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show, each episode. You can find back episodes at ovpodcast.com. Find the blog at obsessiveviewer.com, and you can like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer. So, uh, let's see. Tiny, how's it going? Wonderful, wonderful. Great. Uh, this week on the podcast, um, do you know what we're talking about? <laughs> we are. The, yeah. land of, <laughs> the land of hearts. <laughs> that was just like, yeah. I just sprained that on you. And then, like, do you know what we're talking about? And then you said, we are. <laughs> I don't oh know. I, I don't, don't know, know either. This yeah. is a mess. Anyway, yeah. So, Heartland, that's what we're talking about today. That's all we're going to be talking about today on the podcast. Um, Heartland Film Festival just celebrated their 25th year here in Indianapolis. And, uh, it's a, it's a fantastic festival. We had two episodes last year devoted to last year's Heartland Film Festival. And we were, um, lucky enough to get press passes again this year. And we went to a bunch of screenings and we're going to talk about the stuff that we saw and interspersed throughout those discussions. We're going to throw in some interviews that I'd conducted throughout the, uh, throughout the film festival. So first up, we're just going to talk a little bit about our experience with the film festival itself. Uh, Tiny, how did, how did you fare this year? It was really great this year. Um, I, I think I really just want to give an incredible thanks to everyone at Heartland, not only for, you know, allowing us to be members of the press for it, mm -hmm. um, but for running like a flawless event mm -hmm. over 10 days. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible how, Having doing a live event every year where we do Shocktober, like mm -hmm. we would screw up Heartland so bad <laughs> because I mean, you're just talking about hundreds of screenings mm -hmm. over 10 days and people buying tickets a week in advance and people having all these questions and you have ballots and you have filmmakers and actors and mm -hmm. people there for interviews. I mean, it's and just having it all run seamlessly mm -hmm. and flawlessly and Everyone is so helpful in any issue or anything that I had. I was able to find an answer like right away. And Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing. Incredible. Yeah. The, the sheer logistics of it is just kind of mind blowing after yeah. we've done like Shocktober and Irvington three times. It's like, not that the, not that they're remotely comparable, but it's just, it's so amazing to see just all the wheels spinning for, or, uh, all the wheels moving and cogs moving for Heartland because they do have to coordinate so much to, to run it yeah. uh, so smoothly. And it's just really impressive the way that they uh, can handle it year after year. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to everything that Tiny said, they also do um, 
events like throughout throughout the throughout the festival. So they had the op- opening and closing night, they had their awards night, they had a special 25th anniversary celebration night. And on top of all that, they had filmmakers from like a very a very big number of the films that were there and they had Q&As after each screening. They had a and the the fact that they had that along with uh, coordinating the screening times for it, it's just it's the sheer logistics are are really remarkable. And one thing I want to point out about it is that they reference it since this is the 25th year. They reference that about uh, they did some research and uh, less than 50 percent of all film festivals make it to their 25th year. So wow, that's really impressive for them to uh, to make it and be such a fixture in the community here in Indianapolis. Agreed. All right, so um, so uh, so let's see. I let's just talk about a little bit of stats, really. Okay. Um, first of all, um, last year, last year I went to like twenty five different screenings. Wow. Yeah, and this year, this year I actually had time off from work, um, specifically for Heartland Film Festival, and then I kind of got a little under the weather about halfway through the week, and. Uh, and ended up ended up not going to as many as I would have liked to, but I ended up going to nineteen screenings. Nice. And in in addition to that, we had um, uh, we were part of the press email list for Heartland, so we got um, several uh, screeners for for films that were screening there. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see all of them that we got, but it was just amazing that we were um, included in that email list, and I really appreciate that from uh, Heartland. Agreed. So let's just go ahead and dive right into the movies that we saw or the screenings that we went to and the the films that we saw at Heartland this year. Um, so we, there's a lot to go through, and I'm gonna we're gonna kind of divide it up by um, shorts, narratives, and documentaries. So first, we're gonna kind of dive into uh, the shorts that we saw. And Tiny, you saw you saw three, courtesy of um, the screeners that we got. Um, from the filmmakers so if you could go ahead and uh, dive in and and let us uh know what you saw and i promise i will that's i've met my quota on the amounts of amount of times i can say dive in in this recording (laughs) nice (laughs) uh well the first one i want to talk about is a movie called at ease um which is about a soldier who comes home to attend the wedding of his uh ex-girlfriend basically Mm -hmm. um and it's a really clever short because it's 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 a dramedy so it's you know it's challenging to blend two genres together in such a short time um they managed to pull it off pretty well uh with this movie um it's it's pretty i really enjoyed it because it's it kind of shows both sides i mean it shows the the bride and it shows the the guy who's coming home mm-hmm. um to attend that's an awkward situation in and of itself attending the wedding of your ex and stuff like that mm-hmm. um so it's it's a cool idea it's not necessarily super original but i think the part the, or the fact that he's a soldier coming home is makes it really interesting um and you know there's there's some kind of cliche characters like the 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 main character's best friend who's kind of yeah. giving him all these goofy lines throughout it <laughs> um but you know I, sometimes you know classic characters are some of the most entertaining so i i really enjoyed his buddy um mm-hmm. giving him all those clichés and everything sure. um it's it it was a cool movie and it you know i really didn't know where it was going at the end it kind of it went a little off the rails um as those those kinds of stories are wont to do um but i enjoyed the way they did it and i, I really didn't know what was going to happen at the end so i i think they took a a bit of a 
used or cliched story and kind of made it their own with the ending. I, I enjoyed that. Um, mm-hmm. It was well done, and you know, I liked all the, I liked all the acting and and the script and and everything. There weren't it didn't it didn't have that feeling of a short movie where like, or like you know, like kind of an amateur film almost, like where mm-hmm. you get people who don't know how to act like right that i didn't get that feeling like even the small bit parts everyone i think did a really good job um and it had good cinematography and camera work and everything it felt felt really good it was it was a good movie nice i i saw it too and i i enjoyed it too maybe not quite as much as you did i just kind of thought it was kind of just it was pretty good but um it didn't really have that much of a lasting effect on me but Mm -hmm. um to each their own i mean that's totally cool awesome uh, then the other, one of the other ones I saw was, uh, it's called Future Boyfriend. Um, this was a straight up comedy, um, really funny short and just a, a fantastic idea for, for a movie. Um, basically it involves time travel and it involves, uh, a first date. I don't want to give everything away. Um, right. I just don't want to spoil it. Um, but it's just a really clever idea. It's like one of those things where, like time travel nerds or people who think about that kind of stuff. Um, you think up scenarios for how you would use time travel. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a funny one. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty unique, but it's, uh, I think it's something that's well within the realm of what people have thought about re- involving time travel. Like what would you go back in time to do or what would you go into the future to do? Um, this is a funny scenario and, I I hope people get to see it because I I really don't want to spoil it, but I want people to see it. Um, right. It's it's just it's really funny and it's well written and it's uh it's it's simple, but again <laughs> you're kind of curious as to where it's going to go. Um, it's yeah. I think it was really clever and I really enjoyed this one. Um, me too. I I saw that one as well. And and first of all, I just want to mention that Addie's was directed by Jacob Kirby and uh, written by Jacob Kirby, Matt Scruggs, and Josh Barkey. And uh, I have the so future boyfriend was directed by Ben Rock and written by A Vincent Ulrich. Um, it was based on a uh, it was actually based on a stage play. Um, it was adapted from that. And I saw this too. And um, man, did I love it! Did I love it? It was it was so it was so great. Like this was a short film that was kind of made for me. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. And what what it gets. It does what all great science fiction does that that I gravitate to is it takes its science fiction premise and it uses it to show um to showcase a really human scenario or or um have have a great character characterization come out of it. So in this in this short film um it's two people on a first date one of which has the ability to time travel and what that plot necessitates from a character perspective and a uh, story perspective here is that it shows, it shows a character. It shows how um, a character can have plans for their, for their life planned out. And then there's an interesting thing that happens in which they are confronted with the idea that none of their plans for themselves are going to work out at all. And it's, and it, and it's also at the expense of, um, a relationship and, and, uh, a lot of, there are a lot of moving pieces to it. And I just really thought it was really phenomenal. It was, it was a really great, uh, short film and it's called future boyfriend. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And if I, if I can find links to, 
the uh to the websites for these for the everything that we're going to talk about i'll throw it into the show notes of this episode so that if you are uh, curious about it you can check it out you can either check it out in the show notes of the episode or at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov191 awesome okay so tiny what was the um, <laughs> what was the third short that you saw uh the third short that i got to see um all of you can go see it right now it's available across the internet um it's it's one of the latest short films from pixar mm-hmm. um it's called borrowed time and uh, it's, uh, I think, written, produced, and directed by uh, Andrew Coates and Lou, uh, this is a difficult last name, Hamu Jaj or something like that. I'm, I apologize. That's a, I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Um, but I, I, these are two guys who work at Pixar, and I think they took like five or six years in their spare time to make this six-minute movie, mm-hmm. um, which is a remarkable dedication. Um, this is my favorite of the bunch, and... I, I hate to say that because it's the most mainstream of these three, but mm-hmm. it's just a remarkable, remarkable movie. Um, I, I may have tweeted this. I don't remember. I, I either tweeted it or said it that I managed to smile, laugh, gasp, and cry in the span of six minutes. Wow. So, I mean, it just it's just insane that they can tap into all those different emotions in six minutes and do it with the most beautiful animation you will ever see it is so gorgeous this movie it's just like the detail involved in the animation just blew me away um and it's it's a very visually based uh story in that there's hardly almost no dialogue there's almost no dialogue whatsoever Mm -hmm. um but you just you just cannot take your eyes off this movie it's just remarkable and and it tackles tackles some of the deepest and, and most deeply seated emotions that a person can have. And again, it does it all in six minutes. It's just a remarkable movie. It's called borrowed time. Just Google it. You'll I think it's on YouTube and it may be on, it's on some other websites. Please go watch it. It's only six minutes of your time. It's incredible. <laughs> and, uh, so I didn't get a chance to see this one. Oh, wow. I'm shocked, <laughs> yeah. Pixar fanboy. I know. And I was planning on seeing it because it was part of one of the, uh, it was actually a finalist for the, uh, uh, a shorts finalist. And it, um, they have two shorts finalists blocks of films to screen. Mm-hmm. And this was in, uh, finalists two. And I went to the one, the finalist one. I just didn't have time to see the second one. And then I didn't, I mean, I was so busy the entire time. I just hadn't had time to right. squeeze out the six minutes. So anyway, I'll have to check that out because that sounds incredible. It is fantastic. Yeah. So uh, what kind of shorts did you dive into, Matt? Let's see. I, <laughs> I see what you did there. Buddy. So I attended uh, several shorts um, blocks. Um, a total of four and instead of going through each one individually and, and I hate to do this, but, um, just in terms of timing, we'll have to, I'll give my, uh, thoughts on, on each short, like I'll highlight a couple shorts from each block okay. uh, that I want to talk about. So cool. the first block of short films I saw was the sci-fi block, which included future boyfriend. So check mark there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to kind of talk about a couple, a couple short films that were in this block. Um, first of all, there was a, a short film called uh, Icarus. Uh, Icarus was directed by Tom Teller and written by Tom Teller and Andrew Gustafero. And uh, the 
plot description, I'll just read from the from the guidebook here. When a Mars colony's comm satellite is damaged, Amelia Riley embarks on a seemingly harmless repair excursion. But when a shuttle malfunction cuts connectivity to the ground, Chris, her son, makes the knee-jerk decision to go after her. And the thing that really obviously being being a science fiction fan myself, I Obviously, when I go to either Indie Film Fest or Heartland or any kind of film event like this, I'm I'm gravitating toward the science fiction uh, screenings and and uh, uh, ones that kind of speak to me on that level. So I made sure to make a one of my first screenings to be the sci-fi block of uh, shorts. And Icarus was a really strong um, short film in this block, um, if only because the. Uh, the the amount of uh, visual effects and, and uh, visual effects on the screen were was just remarkable. It was really a really clever, cleverly made and, and really pristine looking film. Um, like the main character of Chris, he has this kind of like robotic companion that reminded me of uh, Claptrap from uh, the Borderlands video games. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was just like that kind of that kind of aesthetic and he's like he's like his little buddy and you really get a sense that even though this is a 20 minute short you get the sense that these characters live on mars and it's it's a mars colony of course and as it progresses you really feel the emotion of 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 some of the events that go on and it has hints of um like the martian and and gravity and other films like that so you kind of get like that's a good idea of what you're in for if you check this out so Anyway, I really enjoyed it. It was called Icarus, and I thought that it was really, really well done. And then the next one is a short film called Uncanny Valley. It was from Argentina, actually. So it's a uh, directed by Federico Heller and written by him as well. And what this what this short film was about, I'll, I'll go ahead and read the plot description again. In the slums of the future, virtual reality junkies satisfy their violent impulses in online inter- entertainment. An expert player discovers that discovers that the line between game and reality is fading. And this wow. was such a cool, cool short film. Nice. It was, uh, you see these, these, um, depictions of like, it opens with a, with a character going through, um, this virtual reality gaming area, like he, and he's, you know, kind of doing a, doing badass things. And, and it's like this really impressive, uh, visualization of, uh, virtual, virtual reality gaming in this future world. And then it's juxtaposed with a, uh, kind of documentary style thing where you show them outside of the game and they're speaking to like talking heads into the camera and you see that everything around them is just decrepit and and really it looks like um it it's like obviously the very clear allegory is is drug drug junkies living in squalor and filth mm-hmm. because their real world is this virtual reality and the places that the plot takes it are really impressive and I really enjoyed it quite a bit um so I highly recommend it if you can find it it's uh, uncanny valley that's impressive. To, I'm, I'm, this whole festival, I've been blown away by short films and these tiny little independent movies tackling huge subjects and like, like to have a short film with what can I, what I can only assume is a shoestring budget, um, tackling something like virtual reality or a whole other planet. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just incredible that people have the, the passion and the, uh, the drive 
to do something that big with such a, a small on such a small scale. Like I'm, I'm just blown away by people's passion to do these movies, despite everything they have to overcome to make them. Absolutely. And those sound like some prime examples. Right. Yep. Cool. And uh, so the next block of short films I saw is uh, uh, comedy. The shorts block of comedy short films and uh i want to highlight first first the immaculate misconception uh directed <laughs> by michael uh Gioen. i i think that's how you pronounce it okay uh, and written by him and simon riley so we actually got a screener of this um short film and it's really like the plot description is when 16 year old Sinead o'reilly announces she is pregnant and her grandmother attempts to get the birth proclaimed immaculate by the vatican and there are some really <laughs> yeah there's some really funny um bits throughout it but what really uh what really surprised me was the ending which i can't really give away here but there was a there was a lot of really good um, elements to it. And then it kind of came together in a really fascinating way at the end, um, that I really enjoyed. So, uh, I highly recommend checking that out if you get the chance. Cool. But the one that I really want to spend a lot of time on, on this, uh, is it's a short film called The Goodbye. And it was directed by Mike P. Nelson and written by Brett, uh, Andres. Um, so, okay. The plot description, this is just the one one sentence plot description is after the death of his muse, a forlorn writer struggles to reignite his creative mojo. Oh my God, this short film. <laughs> um, like I was, I was really, um, really affected by this. I thought it was really amazing. Um, the way that it works is that it's, it's a short film about this writer who he wakes up, goes to his typewriter and, um, or his, his computer, um, and figures, okay, well he needs to, he needs, he's a screenwriter. He needs to write. So he opens up a, uh, uh, his folder of screenplays he's working on. And there's a bunch of different, of different ones that he's working on that are in progress. And there's like one about ninjas, one about, um, um, uh, a, a, a squirrel. And then there's a romantic comedy. So we see, and I won't give much away about it, but we see, like, as soon as he starts working on one, we see that there's, like, we're transitioned into what is essentially a, ra- a waiting room of all of the characters that he's writing in each in each movie. So all these characters <laughs> are sitting in a waiting room, and they're waiting to be, like, worked on and, and called up and written. Hmm. So the movie, the short film, is freaking, like... Like that, that's funny. That's a funny premise, but it goes to such an emotionally resonant place that, like... I mean, I was like, I was getting choked up, like tears were streaming down my face. It was really a powerful, powerful short film. Wow. Oh yeah. It's, and it, it becomes this piece about, um, mourning and, and, and grieving and, uh, how you use creativity to get over something or to, to move past something, um, that is blocking you from, from moving on. And it's how a creative mind can really work through their issues by using their creative energy and how they owe it to their characters. And, and it's just, it's, there's so much to it. And it's just so amazing because there's, there's a scene in it where the writer speak, like sits down and speaks to the uh, main character of one of his scripts who is based on, uh, like he is, he's written, he's writing the character based on his love that, that passed away per the plot description. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like him working out his grief by talking to this character. And it's just, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing short film. I, 
like I cannot recommend it enough. It's called The Goodbye. I don't know if it's online anywhere, but uh, check it out. It's directed by Mike P. Nelson and written by Brett Andres. It's just amazing. That sounds incredible. It it really is. I I definitely recommend checking it out if you uh, if you can. Okay. Yep. Um, okay, so the next block of shorts I'm going to talk about, and my last one actually, is um, the relationships block, which includes some good ones, but I'm just going to go ahead and highlight uh, uh, one here that really, really like affected me. And this short film was called Set Adrift. And, oh man, okay, so the short film was directed by Jennifer Sheridan and Matthew Markham. And written by Jennifer Sheridan. And the plot description per the guidebook for Heartland was, When Patch's beloved owner goes missing, he is forced to work out what is real and what is just his memory. This was, oh my god, like, this was just an an incredible, incredible short film. So, this is essentially about a dog whose owner um, uh, passes away. And it's the grieving process as told specifically from the dog's point of view. And it was unbelievably moving and incredible. Like the way that it's put together is, or the way that it's filmed is astounding. Like, like (sighs) that premise calls for some really interesting, um, uh, visual, uh, cues and, and it's dependent on, um, the acting prowess of a dog, really. And it's, I mean, like, I, it's, it was incredibly moving because you see, you feel how, um, how heartbroken this dog is. And, and that's kind of a silly thing to say, but it's, it's really remarkable because you, you're, you're following this dog through, just simple things as like just sitting around at home and, and walking around. So like there's a, there's a scene and I'm not going to give away a lot of this, this movie cause I really, really want people to see it. So there's a scene where the dog is laying down and they hear the, um, they hear the door open and it is the, um, it's, it's the significant other of the, of the owner that, that died. So, but you see from, since it's from the dog's perspective, you see like a flash of, of what the dog assumes is it is. It's, he assumes that it's, that it's his owner. And so that's kind of a running thing throughout is like, you see, it's kind of weird to say this, but you see the dog, the dog's mind processing what happened and processing the loss. And it's just, unbelievably moving and it's really incredible and it really um it really resonated with me and i i don't know how personal i want to get on here with this Mm -hmm. but um back in february my my father passed away and a lot of obviously you know that was a really terrible time and everything and it's fun to bring up on a podcast (laughs) but um one of the things that um I noticed when when we were when my family was going through that ordeal, we were slowly losing my dad. Um, my parents have have three dogs, and one of them was kind of like, kind of like my dad's companion, like uh, Toby. Uh, we actually got uh, my sister got him for my mom, but uh, my dad just kind of uh, took ownership of him, sort of. Mm-hmm. And so, as my dad was getting worse. Um, it was 
really I mean, obviously it was heartbreaking and, and tragic and, and terrible the entire experience, but one of the things I noticed was that Toby, like Toby was was really like he he sensed what was happening. And mm-hmm. like I've never seen a dog cry until Toby. Um wow. like his eyes were glazed over and like he could tell that something was 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 not right. And um and even when my, my father passed, um Toby ran after the the uh when the um when when they came and when the funeral home came and took took my dad's body, my uh, Toby ran out and chased chased the car. Wow. Um. Yeah. So anyway. Um. So yeah. So so having that in my in my recent memory, and and that's obviously all of that whole experience is never going to leave me. But going into Set Adrift by Jennifer Sheridan, um, just like having that depicted, that kind of seeing that depicted on screen in the short film is like it was just incredibly moving to me and and it really it really resonated with me um maybe more than any other movie that i saw at heartland wow um yeah it was the it was the single most powerful piece of filmmaking that i saw at heartland that sounds um, so good yeah it is really incredible and i posted about it on facebook on the facebook page and i tweeted about it it was funny because i posted about it on the facebook page and I made sure I tagged the Set Adrift Facebook page um, on it. And then, like, I, like I was so, like, just wrapped up in, in how powerful it was that I found the, uh, the uh, director and, and writer's uh, fa- uh, Twitter account or Twitter name and followed her. And then I was writing out a uh, tweet to her, like, and then, like, as soon as I sent the tweet saying, like, I really thought it was powerful, blah, blah, blah. Um, I looked on Facebook and I already had a notification from her commenting on the Facebook page, yeah. Facebook post saying like, oh, it's really nice and everything. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it was what she said was really nice, too. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, so anyway, that's Set Adrift uh, by J- uh, Jennifer Sheridan. And it was really incredible. And if you can find it, I highly recommend checking it out. Awesome. All right, and so to kind of round out our shorts section of this episode, um, they had this really cool... Um, VR VR film thing going on. Did you you weren't there Wednesday or Thursday? Were you? No, I didn't get to experience that. Okay, so what happened was is that there's a really interesting organization that goes to like Africa and, and gives them clean water and, and things like that. Um, it's called Thirst Thirst Project, and what they had at Heartland was this virtual reality film that they created with two back to back 180 cameras. Um, that you put on the, I think it was Oculus, um, headset and have headphones in. And then you looked around and you saw like you were in, you were in the film Hmm. and, uh, it was like a short documentary film about seven minutes long. And I really thought it was an incredible experience. Um, just as an air, just as a film going, um, um, endeavor, um, just being able to like be in the film experience. Like I, I can't, I, I, Virtual reality right now is kind of like it's taking off in terms of from a consumer level for mm-hmm. gaming and stuff like that. And I, I'm really, really uh, curious to see what kind of applications it has for filmmaking and film going um, going forward. And this was a really interesting experience. I was fortunate enough to be able to interview one of the one of the people there from Thirst Project about it. So I'm going to go ahead and just cut to that interview here. And then when we come back, we will talk about um, 
narrative films that we saw at Heartland. Okay, I'm here with Luke from The Thirst Project, who has a uh, virtual reality film uh, playing here at Heartland. They have a nice display out with the Oculus headsets uh, playing uh, throughout the last couple days. Uh, by the time this is up, obviously it's after the festival. So, but uh, but yeah. So, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us about the Thirst Project and about the uh, the virtual reality. Uh, experience and everything. Absolutely. My name is Luke Romick, and I'm the head of development and events here at The Thirst Project, and we put together this VR film with two 180-degree cameras shooting back-to-back, so it's a completely immersive 360-degree experience. You can't move around within the film, but you can look every single degree around, and we take you into a community called Matsanjani, which is a community that has no access to safe, clean drinking water. So we take you, the first half of the film takes you through the community, seeing what it's like without access to clean water, then transitioning you to the implementation of a clean water well and what effect that has on the community both emotionally and physically. And it is narrated the entire time by our community director in Swaziland by the name of Sibo Sisu Shiba. Excellent. And this is my first experience with anything with with VR or anything. I've heard I've heard a lot of things about the experience of VR and uh, uh, especially with like obviously VR gaming and everything, but from um, from a filmmaking perspective, it's really interesting. Just I'm fascinated by all of the different applications that it could mean for it. Um, and what I found so, what I found really moving about the, about the film, it's a it's about how uh, about seven minutes long, seven minutes, about yeah. seven minutes long, and uh, it it's so immersive. And in in this this type of story, the story of. Um, different cultures from people like we're here in the united states and it's like it's you know you see documentaries and you see things online about uh suffering around the world and and issues around the world and it's it's not as as uh tangible as as, like here like we can't really there's a disconnect there and what i felt was really interesting about this was that it's it's immersive you can look around and everything like i was i found myself very um brought into the experience and, and like looking around and seeing all of the all of the people and, and everything and it was a very immersive experience and I thought it was really interesting um, can you speak to like the challenges of, of creating that or was there like how in terms of like creating something like that what are some of the uh, considerations to put into it um, when you have to two 180 degree cameras back to back absolutely so the biggest challenge we faced was having a shooter so someone to shoot the video and then we started to realize no matter where you stood you were always in the shot and so we would set up a tripod about 500 600 feet away from where we we were located as a production team and then had to leave the shot entirely keep the camera running and then set up the scene to do that without anybody there so the biggest challenge was no matter what you're shooting 360 degrees so you could hold the camera above your head you're still going to see you underneath it Mm -hmm. and so that was really the biggest challenge and and then in the production editing side of things really stitching together the shots to make it look as clean and as almost like panorama as possible Um, and kind of speaking to what you had said about how virtual reality was you were there and you had a more immersive experience I think the real difference between virtual reality and whether it's a documentary or me and you talking face to face or hearing it on the radio there's one thing where you can hear it and see it and know what the issue is but when there is no way to escape the reality of 360 degrees around you there's nothing you can do but face the issue and face face the real emotional value of what you're going through. And so I think it's, it's such a unique way to tell a story. And there's really, like, even in a movie theater, you could pull out your phone. Mm-hmm. You can't do that when you're in virtual reality because
because you're so locked in and it's it's just that immersive full body experience that's that's exactly right and that's something that's it's funny because like i like we're so connected to our phones and and to like distractions and and like currently today that it's 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 such a unique experience to be in an experience where you can't like you're torn away from those distractions and it really helps with the uh the story being told to you um yeah, so so can you tell us like uh, more about the Thirst Project and where they can where we can find it online and, and information about it? Yeah, so the Thirst Project is a nonprofit organization that started about seven and a half years ago in Los Angeles, California. The founder and CEO Seth Maxwell was friends with a Times photographer, and she showed him image after image of people walking for water in South Sudan. And he was so shook by this, he was like, "What am I going to do? I'm a college student. All I want to do is act. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm here for myself." And so. The next day, he met someone at church who was a hydrologist, and it was almost like fate that it was, here's what you can do. This is how much money you need to raise to fully fund a well and things like that. So he and his seven college buddies gathered up $70, all they had between them, went to Hollywood Boulevard with about 100 water bottles, passing them out to people saying, here's the issue at hand. What are you going to do about it? And at the time, seven and a half years ago, it was 1.1 billion people without access to clean water. Just a staggering number. just blows your mind. Mm -hmm. And so in seven years, the Thirst Project has been able to raise $8 million by speaking at schools, high schools, colleges, middle schools alike, and activating students to take change. We speak on about 300 different campuses every single year, activating around 300,000 students. And then on the other side of things, we use a lot of celebrity endorsements and corporate partnerships to help fund our operations so that 100% of any public donation goes to the actual work that we do. Nice. Absolutely. And so you can you can find us on social media anywhere at Thirst Project. Thirsty without the Y project is what we like to say. Nice. And then thirstproject.org. Um, you can request a speaker to come, whether you're a company, a person, have a group of people, a school, request a speaker for anything, find out more information and ways to get involved. Excellent. That's that's awesome. And that's a fantastic cause as well. Um is there are there is this VR experience going to be traveling to any other places uh, in the near future? So we're submitting the VR film to other film festivals right now. We're thinking about bringing it out to South by Southwest, um, and we're really just finding an experiential way to share this story and not just have pop up banners with high top tables. And so. Sure. <laughs> The, the issue of a nonprofit is we don't have the budgets to put together these beautiful activations that Samsung and Oculus and Facebook can all do. So we really have to leverage partnerships in order to create those really unique experiences and really tell the story the way we want to. But we think right now with the VR world and all the money being put behind VR, which we had been talking about earlier, I yeah. think uh, I think there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of potential for some really impactful change. Absolutely, and uh, best of luck to uh, with with Thirst Project and the VR experience and everything going forward. And uh, yeah, it just seems like such a such a burgeoning like uh, technology that's that's it's very interesting to see what it's gonna what's gonna happen in the future uh, as far as narratives and, and things like that, and especially with uh, applications for it for having such a like a worthwhile cause to really bring people into. It's a really remarkable technology, and uh, I was very I was very excited about this so that was awesome absolutely <laughs> all thank right. you so much no problem thank you for uh, talking to me and uh once again you can find it at uh where's the website thirstproject.org there we go all right well thank you so much and uh hope you have a great rest of the festival here thank you you too okay and i'll put links to all that in the show notes of this episode as well and at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov191 all right tiny so why don't we go ahead and talk about some narrative films that we saw absolutely all right why don't you get us kicked off with what you saw 
Yes, the first movie that I actually got to see for the whole festival was uh, a movie called Persona Non Grata. Um, it was directed by a Japanese gentleman named Chelan Gluck, uh, who was there uh, for the screening. I didn't really get to meet him or anything, but um, it's it was a really good movie. Uh, it was a, a period piece. It was about a Japanese diplomat during World War II who uh, was mm-hmm. stationed in Lithuania, and he basically used um, his power to grant visas, like travel visas to people, to allow all of the um, Jewish population, uh, not all, obviously, but a, a mm-hmm. large number of, number of the Jewish population of the capital of Lithuania to get out of Lithuania uh, before the Germans and the Nazis made their way to Lithuania and took over Lithuania, which they eventually did. Mm. Um, at the time, the Soviet Union kind of took over, um, kind of took over Lithuania and occupied Lithuania and was not allowing anyone to leave and, and was about to, you know, cease travel for anyone. And so this diplomat allowed all, gave travel visas, Japanese travel visas to thousands of Lithuanian Jews in, this, in the period of a couple weeks um, while he still had the power to do so. Um, he, he's almost like the Japanese Oscar Schindler, if you will, um, mm. obviously a lot less involved and everything, but, uh, it's, it's a true story. And I had never even heard of this guy. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, but, uh, it's Ch- Chihun or Shiun Sugihara. Um, Google him and look him up, read a book about him or please go see this movie. It's an incredible story that I just knew nothing about. And, uh, the movie's really well done. I, I was, again, I'm, I'm just impressed with the fact that you have, you know, an, an independent movie that has a small budget and has so many things to overcome. But, you know, Chellen Gluck chose to tell a period story about people from all different countries and all different walks of life in 1940 it's like that's just an incredible thing to do you know there's the the logistics and the scale of the movie is really impressive it takes place i mean from the earliest scenes of the movie to the latest it takes place over 20 20 plus years Hmm. um and you have people speaking japanese people speaking chinese russian lithuanian english couple other languages thrown in there i think <laughs> and you go to moscow you go to japan and and china and lithuania and it's it's just incredible berlin munich all these different places it's just incredible the scale of the movie what they were able to accomplish uh with from an independent standpoint and from a, a small you know a small startup movie if you will you know there's it's not some big budget movie you know it's just incredible what they achieved with this mm-hmm. um i will say the movie was a little bit it was a little long i mm-hmm. i think it could have used a little bit more editing i think it, it had a couple of endings <laughs> that could have been uh could have been chopped off or mm-hmm. kept to you know kind of brought together i guess or or joined up and it would have made it a little little smoother. Um, But I I really can't complain again because everything was just so impressive uh, with this movie. Um, 
there was a Polish character that I related to a lot because nice. uh, when I was in Poland and I talked to my family members, they, you know, they still have opinions about being occupied by the Soviets for so long and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got to talk to people who dealt with that firsthand and to hear this Polish character have some of the same sentiment that really resonated with me and really, that was my end. That got me hooked in this movie. Not that I necessarily needed anything else because it was, it was such an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that meant a lot to me and I, the, the Lithuanians and the Poles have a very uh, close relationship and have had for hundreds of years. So that kind of resonated with me. Um, and, and just, just the fact that this is just a remarkable story that this guy was really, he was an idealist and he didn't, he wanted to be a, a diplomat because he was interested in peace and and you know bringing people together and and cultures and governments working together instead of you know being at war and he used that idea to save all these people um and he he saved a couple thousand people and there are I don't remember the exact statistics but I think there are like 30 or 40,000 descendants of the people that he helped get out of Lithuania. Oh wow. Um, the Jewish population. So I mean that that's that's an incredible statistic that's listed at the end of Schindler's list. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like 20,000 people at the time that movie was made are descendants of the the Schindler Jews if you will. So I I think this guy had that story is so famous and that movie is so famous and it is for a good reason. Mm. And I think this guy should be equally as famous because he, I think his work was just as important and his story is just as important and remarkable. So, um, I, I liked the movie. I had issues with it, but I, I, I don't care because the movie, the story, <laughs> like I said, the story is so incredible and I was so moved by it. Um, I really hope everyone can see it at some point. It was actually, it actually was made last year. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's been released more widely this year. Um, I think it was somewhat successful in Japan, uh, where the filmmakers from. Oh, nice. Um, so I, I hope it gets a wide release and I, I hope people can, or, you know, maybe check it out on DVD. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, I wish, I wish I could have met the, the filmmaker, but I, just, I didn't have time. It was a week nine. It was late. Oh, right. and I, just, I couldn't talk to him or anything, yeah. which is unfortunate. Um, it's great. I recommend it. Please try to find it if you can. Nice. And uh, what what other narratives did you see? Yeah, the other one uh, we actually got to see this one together. This we did was, uh, to keep the light. Uh, it was directed by and starred uh, Erica Fay. Um, this was a pretty interesting movie. I um I was interested in it because it seemed like such a specific story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a female lighthouse keeper in Maine in the 1870s, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, what, what struck me about it is, is, again, it was so spe- such a specific story that I, I was just curious what inspired the filmmaker and the writers to tackle the story. And w- what was it, what was it about it that needed that this story needed to be told? Mm-hmm. Um, and specificity, the specificity of it made it really unique and unlike unlike any movie I'd ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. So, the, you know, there's not a lot of stories out there about lighthouse keepers in the 1870s in Maine. Right. Um, it's, it's just, it's just a kind of a, a really unique story. And so that's what drew me to it. Um, unfortunately, I think it, the, uh, the movie kind of, it was, it was very, very slowly paced. There's not, mm-hmm. 
not a lot of action in it, and there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of gravitas to it. It's all very plain, um, and I think maybe that was strategic on on mm-hmm. the part of the filmmaker. But I think it worked against the movie a little bit. I think there could have been some more, a little bit more drama and a little bit more spark to some of the scenes. Um, some of the dialogue was just pretty drab, pretty drab, mm-hmm. and it could have been punched up a little bit to make it more more interesting. Um, but I really appreciated the performance of Erica Faye. Um, I, I think she did a good job as a, as, as a very troubled person who kind of finds their way. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good performance. And, uh, and again, just the uniqueness of it, it, it's kind of, the movie's based on some true stories. I don't know exactly how true the, the story is per se, the specific story, but, uh, it's inspired by some, really cool events and some very unique people. And, uh, I respect it for that. Um, it was just a, it was just a really slowly paced movie. It it kept my attention, but I could see a lot of people trying to watch this and getting, getting bored, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, it had its flaws. Right. I, I agree. And I mean, um, we, like you said, we saw this together and it's worth mentioning that this was, this movie was shot on, on location on an island off the coast of Northern Maine. Right. And you can really, like, it's, it's really spectacular to look at. Um, mm-hmm. it's another, another movie that it's a, uh, it's a period movie. Right. And, uh, it's just, it's remarkable to see, uh, this, the detail that's, that's put into these, to these films. Um, I, I thought that it was pretty okay. Um, it didn't really grab me that much, but, um, I echo a lot of the sentiments that you had for it. Nice. And Eric Faye also wrote the script. Did she write it too? Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. She, she went full in on this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought it was good. And, uh, so those are the only narratives I really got to see. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead and, uh, go into mine. Sure. Okay. So, um, I, I saw a bunch of films here, so I'm just going to kind of go through some and, and highlight some of the ones that I saw. So, uh, because, uh, so we can kind of save on time here. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is, um, much like to keep the light. This movie was a period movie. It's called Girl Flu. Um, <laughs> and it's literally a period movie. It's, uh, it was written and directed by Dory Barton and it stars Katie Sackhoff. And it's about, uh, the plot description is Bird, a 12-year-old wise beyond, beyond her years, finds herself having to take care of her fun but flighty stoner of a mom, Jenny. When Bird is humiliated by getting her first period at the school picnic, the delicate balance at home blows up as Bird and Jenny struggle to navigate the onslaught of change and raging hormones. So this movie, Girl Flu, was, um, was really good. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you can actually find it at, at girl flu movie on Twitter and facebook.com slash girl flu movie. Um, this, it was really fun and it really funny, but it was also a really interesting exploration of, um, of what it is to have to be a girl that's, that's lost in, um, in this new grown up predicament that she's in having her first period granted i have no context for how this <laughs> is but um i thought it was really good and what stood out to me what stood out to me were the performances um katie sackhoff does a really great job of playing this kind of um dysfunctional mother and jeremy sisto actually appears in the movie as uh, as her boyfriend who's kind of this this mentor slash kind of 
fatherly figure to uh, the main character. But uh, Jade Pettyjohn, who played um, Bird, she was freaking fantastic. She did such a great job. Nice. And it's really amazing to see that from from such a young actress. And there's there's a scene where, um, kind of the kind of the drama gets to a boiling point between Bird and her mother, and they they are screaming at each other and like it's such a such a powerful scene like such a powerful dramatic scene and they like they're going toe to toe with each other um with words and uh <laughs> Jade Pettyjohn just is is so so remarkable at selling exactly what her character is going through and it's it's really impactful that way i thought it was really well done um i really enjoyed it it's called girl flu and hopefully you'll get a chance to see it at some point nice yep um and I like that the the promotional material, the cards that they had, the postcards that they had on the tables, um, um, it it has like it lists that as uh, or like the the promotional cards and stuff said that it's a period movie. I thought that was that was clever. <laughs> um, okay, so next up that I'm going to talk about is a movie that we actually have a uh, an interview for that I'll I'll put at the end of this section of the podcast. Um, it's called Trivia Night. Um, directed by Robert Gregson and written by Addison Anderson, Colin Drummond, Michael Molina, and uh, stars Addison Anderson, uh, Colin Drummond, and Michael Molina. So this movie is, it's a comedy about, um, I'll read part of the plot description here, when the unbeatable game show, or when the unbeaten game show Trivia Night announces that its final episode will bring back a single past contestant, obsessive trivia buff Scott Nadler strives to overcome its brain-breaking preliminary trials, defeat the world's trivia aces, and earn a second chance on the show that once embarrassingly eliminated him on his first question. So this is a comedy, and it's, uh, as the plot description alluded to, it's about this guy who is an obsessive trivia buff. Um... And he is such a fascinating character because he is so wrapped up in like he makes his living in in the film. He makes his living um, earning prizes from bar trivia nights. So that's how he earns a living. He's just <laughs> he's that good at it. Wow. And what I loved about this movie was that it exists in this weird other otherly world where where like the character of of um, Scott played by Addison Anderson, he is he's kind of in his own world. He, he's almost, he's almost the, uh, he, he's, he's kind of the too smart for his own good kind of character. And he is kind of a, uh, he's kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> and it's really captivating. Like I'm, I was still drawn to his story and I was really impressed with it. And it was interesting. Uh, well, you'll hear more about it when I, when we get to the interview portion of it, but, um, Addison, that the main actor in it, he said that he has like he had women come up to him after screening, saying that uh, that character is like the type of person that they've dated in the past and tried to get get away from. <laughs> and it's like it's really it's a really fascinating character um, for this particular story because it's a comedy and it's not like he's like he's not like a terrible human being or anything. He's just he's this really like know it all guy who is still really has his own charms and is really uh he's really quick witted and it's just it's really captivating to watch and he always has these little quips and stuff but it always feels very genuine and uh there's a lot of uh information about the 
writing process in the, in the interview that you'll hear here in a bit. Um, but it was, it's a really great movie. I really, I thought that above all else, I thought that it was just a really fun movie and you'll hear more about it here in a minute, but, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's called Trivia Night and, uh, I hope you check it out. Sounds awesome. Oh yeah. Next up is, uh, I'll be kind of brief with this one, uh, Pushing Dead, uh, written and directed by Tom E. Brown. Uh, this movie is, uh, it stars uh, James Roday and Danny Glover. James Roday is he is uh, he was the main character or main actor in the movie, or not the movie, but the the TV show Psych, which I watched oh, okay. one season of. Yeah, nice. Um, very charismatic actor. Like mm. just right off the bat, he's a really charismatic guy. Um, the plot description, a uh, little bit of it is when Dan, a struggling writer who has been HIV positive for 20 plus years, deposits a $100 birthday check, he is dropped from his health plan for earning too much. In this new era of sort of universal health care, can he take on a helpless bureaucracy or come up with $3,000 a month to buy meds on his own? And this was a really kind of touching comedy. I really wanted to see this one. <clears throat> yeah, it's it was it was really good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, There's a lot to it. Um, obviously, um, there's, there's kind of a subplot involving Danny Glover and his, and his wife that I kind of, honestly, I could kind of do without, Okay. but, um, the main plot of, of Dan and his, uh, his issues with, with getting his medicine for, you know, HIV is, uh, really, really well done, really drawn out really well. Um, I'm really curious how much of James Roday, injected his own personality into it because it kind of he kind of has this uh energy to him that's kind of similar to his character in psych um but he it's it's more grounded than than that and psych he's like this kind of wacky um know-it-all kind of guy um a very perceptive guy i should say um and in here he's he's more grounded and he has more issues there's some really powerful like acting moments from him as well in this in this movie and i i really enjoyed it there's there's a lot of really poignant scenes where he's dealing with, with, you know, getting his medicine. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was one of the finalists at, um, at Heartland this year. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay. And the last narrative movie that I, I saw that I'll, I'll talk about here on this, uh, in this podcast is, uh, the Merry Maids of Madness, which was, uh, directed by Philip Hughes and written by Jen dot, uh, uh, Doherty. And so this movie, um, I'll, I'll, Really quickly read a plot summary. The Merry Maids of Madness is feature length is a feature length comedy inspired by the women of Shakespeare that tells the story of Beatrice, who after walking out of her wedding for a sandwich, decides to take a rest at the Stratford home for rest and rehabilitation. Beatrice soon realizes that if she wants to get out, she'll need a plan and the help of her unusual cohorts. Uh, so this movie was really charming, um, incredibly charming. And it made me really wish that I knew more Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm woefully uneducated on, on Shakespeare, but I, the references that I could pick up here and there, um, the more overt one is that there's each, each woman in the, in the ward that she, that Beatrice is in is representative of, of a woman from Shakespeare's work. And for example, the more, um, the more overt one is a character of Julie who is lovelorn and, uh, wants to see her beloved. Uh, who is banned from coming to the uh, coming to the ward? Um, obviously, paralleling Juliet from Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And then there are like three old, 
I believe, and I'll look like an idiot if I don't, if I'm wrong on this, but this, there's no other way that this could be construed otherwise. But, um, there, <clears throat> there are three elderly ladies who they go to for, um, advice or for, for help with one of, one of Beatrice's plans. And it's like clearly like they're the three, the three witches from, um, Hamlet. Macbeth? Macbeth. From Macbeth. Good call. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know Shakespeare either, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the only reason I could remember Macbeth is because Throne of Blood from Curacao. Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, um, three women that they go to for advice and help during one of uh, Beatrice's plans is a uh, pattern after the three uh, witches from Macbeth. And it's it was a really fun, a really fun movie. There's, there's a lot of uh, really fun stuff in it. And um, it was nice to see that... Um, it was nice to see that movie. And like one of the things that I really like about Heartland is that there's a lot of like really deep, deep, uh, kind of emotionally charged movies. And it's nice to kind of get a balance of, of comedy and drama this year from, from Heartland's selection. So I, I feel like I did a pretty good job with the narratives with that. Cause Mary Maids of Madness was fun and energetic as well as like girl flu. And, um, Trivia Night was was fun as well, and then I saw a bunch of uh, kind of more dark and um, dramatic movies as well. Okay. Okay. Next up, we're going to talk about documentaries. But first, I'm going to cut to our uh, my review with the guys from uh, Trivia Night, the movie that I talked about a few minutes ago. So enjoy that interview, and then when we come back, we will talk about documentaries. <laughs> Okay, so I'm here at Heartland Film Festival with Robert, Addison, and Michael from the film uh, Night uh, Trivia Night. It's been a long day. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so uh, we just got out of the film, and it is such a spectacularly fun, fun movie, and it's hilarious, and um, it's 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 really great. So, why don't you guys just introduce yourselves? Tell you uh, uh, tell the recorder here um, what uh, your uh, what your role was in the film. Um, if you, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see that we have a, a gun to his head to say those <laughs> nice things. But my name is Michael. I was a co-writer, co-producer, and I co-starred in it as well. I played Grimly, this shaggy Muppet of a uh, you know, friend. I'm Robert Gregson, the director, and I was responsible for wrangling all these guys. <laughs> and I'm Addison Anderson uh, with Michael over here and Colin. Uh, I co-wrote it, and I starred as Scott Nadler, the trivia king of New York City, who is trying to take down the quiz show that ruined his life. <laughs> Great. Thanks, guys. And, uh, and yeah, that, that premise alone is just so, like just perfect for for comedy and and it had this uh, you you guys in the Q&A mentioned that uh Scott is like this uh, I can't remember the phrasing that you use um an underdog but a certain type of underdog can you yeah. speak to that cuz I thought that was just so beautifully pinpointed exactly what the character was yeah um, well, yeah, we. I think I thought of Scott when playing him as a toxic underdog. Uh, this guy who kind of thinks of himself the way that we think of the main character of an underdog type of comedy movie. Um, but really underneath that, there is, over the, the course of his journey, all this 
like anger and pushing people away that comes out. And so even though you're still rooting for him and laughing along with him and seeing him as the main character, you're also like realizing that there's something really bad that he's doing. And so it's kind of an underdog movie that becomes a monster movie at the end. Uh, and he is the monster. Um, so yeah, it was really, really fun to play that. And I think for a low budget comedy that still has this very, very kind of high concept, relatable premise, um, it's an interesting character to put at the center of it. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I love the, I love just the, the way that you, the, that you portrayed him it was like he's such a, um, like he, he's kind of this cocksure kind of, kind of guy. And it's kind of like, you can kind of see him alienating so many people, but you really like are with him throughout the whole movie, and it's so it's so much fun just to see that. It seems like a really fun role to to play. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, after the after we screened the movie to some people, uh, some women came up to us and were like, "I learned I had to learn not to date guys like that because they seem." <laughs> <laughs> they seem nice at the start, but that, that's because they're just trying to differentiate themselves from all these all these people they have these toxic <laughs> grudges against. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was really fun to play that kind of that just edge of like pushing people away and while still being funny and, and compelling. So that is that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so this movie was uh, Kickstarter. Uh, it was kickstarted. You guys started out doing uh, sketch sketch comedy. Um, can you speak about your history and about the Kickstarter campaign for it and everything? Yeah. Sure. So we started as a sketch comedy group called Local Empire, and we basically decided to make 10 sketch videos a month, and we would have a monthly show in New York, and we would take whatever we made at the door and fund the next 10 videos. And so we made 100 videos that way, actually 106 videos. And we were, we, that totaled like 300 minutes of content plus. And so we were like, we've made 300 minutes, like we can probably make an 80 minute movie. And so from the uh, fans that we had gained while doing sketch comedy, we did a Kickstarter and we raised $35,000 and we're able to put together a budget and using so when Robert Rodriguez um, made his first movie, uh, Mariachi, El Mariachi, he was like, "All right, I've got six thousand dollars. I've got this town in Mexico, and I've got these actors. This is what I can do." And so we looked at the money that way. We're like, "We got thirty-five thousand dollars. We've got these actors. We've got New York, where we drink and hang out in apartments." So we're like, "What's a movie that can take place in bars and apartments?" and Trivia Night, Trivia Night at Bars, kind of jumped into our heads, and we made a movie around that. That's fantastic. And the, this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first feature film that you've done. It looks so beautiful uh, from from every aspect of it. It looks like you're seasoned seasoned filmmaker. So I was really impressed with just the production value of it. Um, and it's it's it just looks amazing. And uh, also the script is so so freaking tight. Like it's it's incredible. Like uh, what was the what was the scripting process? Like what was the screenwriting process like on it? Was it um, yeah? How how did that go? Once uh, once. Michael and Colin and myself kind of we had the beats of the story down which took a long time to do but we figured out you know every beat scene by scene uh, then we would each kind of take a turn with it uh, so that one of us in isolation would write it for you know the next week or week and a half they would do the next section of it and then pass it along to the next person who could then rewrite the entire thing um, while doing the next stretch of it. And so at the end of it, it was something that we kind of, we had all, um, you know, agreed on after much argument and much rewriting of each other, but it was kind of concentrated down to what we know, what we knew was working. Um, so, so yeah. And, and yeah, we wanted it to not feel kind of like a, 
your basic big studio comedy. We want it to, to have that tightness to it, jokes happening over other people's lines, and kind of have it feel like how it feels when friends are in a room arguing or making jokes or something like that, to have it kind of feel true to life but sped up so that the audience is almost running to catch up with it. And then they start to like running to catch up with it. That's fantastic. And also working with Robbie, the director, while we're writing the script and while we're putting the story together really helps us make sure that we're hitting the emotional points and we're hitting the story points and he can actually shoot it. And so, you know, we're not writing scenes that are going to cost our entire budget. So we're able to be in conversation with the director and that really helped us get the tone and visual style of the film present in the script that made an easy translation to the screen. Nice, nice. So what what were some of the... uh Biggest challenges or, or biggest surprises that you found when filming, the, when shooting actually began throughout the whole process? It was very challenging. There was no time or money uh, to make any mistakes, so everything was plotted meticulously. Um, things happened like it would rain, right. and um, I think the, the cinematographer was a little unhappy, and he would walk away oh, wow. and you know and which, which is fair because it was very rough sure. but we didn't really have a budget to uh, to do anything else so sure. we just had to keep, keep shooting um, it, you know like we ha- would have like a, a smoke machine that for a scene and it would go off in a studio and we would lose half our day uh, because it set the fire alarm off and, and the shut fire down the entire building yeah <laughs> um, but honestly s- shooting went very very smoothly overall and uh Editing took a long time. Right. Yeah. 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 Nice. How long was the post-production process on it? Post-production was about six and a half, seven months. Um, we were doing it. It was what we called living room film because nobody was getting paid to edit it, really. <laughs> and um, we, we had to do it in our free time. And, um, you know, shooting is easy because you, there, I had an amazing script uh, and I had an excellently planned out movie. Um, but editing can be, you know, endless choices. And uh, right, yeah. I think an editor is always the third writer, right? So the three writers are a writer, the director, and the editor. And so that was the the final really uh, collaborative effort of the film was us all sitting together with Robbie um, and with the editor and going through the movie and making sure that jokes that don't work weren't in the movie or jokes that were that did work we kind of spaced out. We actually learned this from. I think Adam McKay and Will Ferrell did this with their comedy. They screened it, and they taped the laughter. And so they knew when they were telling jokes uh, over laughter. And so we did that with our friends. We sat down with, like, 20 people and taped the laughter. And so we made sure that our pacing wasn't too fast, that we would miss jokes or that we were spending too long on a joke. Uh, That was a great, great piece of advice we picked up from them. Perfect. That's awesome. So, uh, so what's next for Trivia? And I know you guys said that you had some um, streaming uh, options planned in the future, but uh, is there any more festivals that's going to be playing at uh, in the coming months? Or Lone Star. Yeah, we're going to Lone Star in Dallas-Fort Worth, I think, next week. Um, and then, yeah, we're looking to stream it after that kind of for the holidays on Vimeo On Demand and then Amazon. Right. It's secretly a Christmas movie. <laughs> it takes place in the few weeks before Christmas. So we're going to release it right after Thanksgiving in that, like, if you don't like Christmas, you're, like, depressed and it's cold and it probably hasn't snowed and so it's gray and you're like, what's the point of this anyways? That's the tone of the movie. Yeah. yeah. It's a great December 7th movie. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> 
perfect. Plus, you'll learn a lot of interesting facts and stuff yeah. throughout yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you guys so much for chatting with me, and congratulations on such a great film. And uh, where can you, where can people find uh, Trivia Night online? Uh, where, like, your online presence and everything. Yeah, if you go to www.trivianightfilm.com, uh, you can find out any type of news about the film. Also, you can follow us on at Trivia Night Film on Twitter and Instagram. And our sketch comedy group where we started was Local Empire. So just look up Local Empire on YouTube and you'll be taken to our channel or some guy's weird basement confessions. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'll put all the links to that in the show notes of this episode as well. And uh, thanks again, guys, and hope you have a great rest of the festival. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks, so Matt. Yep. And so we're going to kind of round out this episode by talking about the documentaries that we saw. And Tiny... Um, if I'm not mistaken, you are kind of fond of the old uh, documentary um, uh, genre, aren't you? Is that a reputation that I have? I don't know. It kind of is, yeah. I don't know why I would. <clears throat> no, obviously, this is this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. <laughs> no, there were about 20 documentaries I wanted to see, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to see three of them, which I was, I was pretty happy with. Um, nice. The first one I want to talk about uh, was my most anticipated screening, the one that I was looking forward to the most mm-hmm. for the whole festival. It's uh, USS Indianapolis, The Legacy. Um, I was really looking forward to it because it's it's just about such an incredible story. And it's it's something that's loosely but somewhat related to the city where I was born and raised, Indianapolis. Um, and it's, it's a story that I don't think a lot of people... People don't know enough about. I, I didn't know enough about it. I knew some of the, the broad strokes of... The sinking of the USS Indianapolis, but I didn't mm-hmm. know enough. Um, I didn't realize the importance of that ship before it sank. I mean, it. Did you not know about that? I did not know. I didn't really. I didn't realize that it was FDR's like flagship for like over oh. a year. I didn't realize that it delivered the bomb. I didn't know that about um, FDR, but yeah, the the bomb. Yeah. Yeah, I did not. I mean, I, I was grossly, grossly undereducated on the USS Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story in and of itself is amazing. And in, the, in this documentary, it's not just one story. It's not just about the sinking. It's about so many different things. They even bring it up in the documentary about how, you know, if you made this up and wrote a story about it, people probably wouldn't like it because it would be like unbelievable. Like, right. No one would believe that it could happen, but it's, it's not just one thing. It's not just about a boat sinking. It's about there. There's so many different stories that revolve around the ship and this event. And it's really remarkable. Um, so just that right there makes it a great movie. But uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, I was blown away by the documentary because they've been making it for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it involves 104 interviews that they did over 10 years. And they've, I assume, spent the last five years editing them all together. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a remarkable undertaking. and And you're talking about interviewing people who survived the worst event of their life or like one of the, if you try to imagine a horrible event, like this would be at the top of the list for one of the most awful things you could endure. Right. It's just, it's incredible. The trauma that these men survived. And so to get them to talk about it years later and, you know, they're all old men that's, you know, they're Mm -hmm. dealing with the difficulties of being an old man and trying to tell the story it's just amazing what they what they accomplished with the documentary. Um, when I was as I was watching it, and like as as it, as it first started, it really kind of throws you because 
with that much content, the editing of this documentary has to be very quick and very sharp and abrupt and sudden. Everything just, it, it has a very quick edited nature to it. Mm-hmm. And it, it can really, it, it can really throw you at first and it, it threw me at first. And I would have preferred to kind of, to kind of stay on these individual stories and flesh them out and then move on to another story and then another story mm-hmm. or another interview, if you will. But it's like, there's a cut like every two or three seconds, it feels like, or every five seconds. Right. And at first I was, I was not really feeling it and it really threw me. But after 20 minutes or so, I was like, you know what? That's the only choice they had with this documentary. And they, they did a good job putting all of this together and editing everything together. And it's to the point where, one of these survivors will start a sentence and then another survival will f- survivor will finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, that sounds complex and that sounds jarring, but it worked. It wor- It really worked with this movie. And I think it worked because of the gravitas of the situation and the intensity of the people telling it and everything. I, I think that's what made it work. And mm-hmm. normally I wouldn't have been a fan of it, but uh, of that style of editing and that, the style of filmmaking, but it worked for this movie. And I think it was the right choice given how much quality content they had with 104 interviews. So it's, it was really well done and I'm really glad somebody made this. Um, it took 80 years or whatever from the hap, from the, uh, the event happening to now. Um, but I think that that amount of time was needed in order for the full story to develop, you know, a lot of these guys talked about how they'd never talked about this event for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, you know, it took them forever to tell even their wives about it or to even talk to each other about it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's one of those things that I think the timing of it and how long ago the story was is critical to the story being told. And so, it feels like this was just like a perfect confluence of events to have this documentary happen. Um, and I know that part of the festival, they actually, they actually screen this, they screen this documentary at least once at the, uh, like the amphitheater that's at the war memorial here in mm-hmm. Indianapolis, uh, which is, that's just an incredible kind of full circle thing. And I would have loved to have seen it there. Um, but I was, more than happy to see it where I did in the theater. And I'm really happy that it was a packed theater. It was sold out. Yeah. Um, one of the producers was there an honorary survivor was there. We got to hear them talk and hear a Q and a with them. It was an incredible experience and I could tell that everyone in the theater really enjoyed it. Mm. I loved it. Um, and it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray in the next uh, couple weeks. I think it actually comes out on DVD. Uh, okay. I don't believe it. It'll have a Blu-ray release, but gotcha. It comes okay. out on DVD on November fifteenth. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and you can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. It's sixteen ninety-nine. Nice. And I will be. I'll be ordering it and and watching it again. I really nice. love the movie, and I'm really honored, basically, to have been a part of this screening and getting to mm-hmm. see it in the theater and. Having that experience was awesome. I really loved it. Yeah, I I was there too, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, uh, I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Sorry. Right. No, yeah. that's fine. Uh, well, we saw it with my brother actually. My uh-huh. brother was there too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, just uh, I I yeah I really enjoyed it too. <laughs> nice. 
I thought it was really great. Just the the way that the narrative flowed through, uh, through uh, flowed through all the all the snippets and everything. Like like Tiny said, the way that it was edited together was really pretty remarkable. Because about halfway through it, I kind of realized like th- these aren't like we're not seeing like dramatic interpretations of it, or we're not. There's not this. Emph- there's not like this. Um, disassociated voice or this uh this voice that's telling us like oh this this ship was uh, was here and the, like there's no like build up to it it's just it's literally cut together interviews to make a narrative through the interviews and it's like it's the most direct way to get a very real sense of of what happened and 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 everything about the story and i thought that it was just really remarkable how they were able to to edit that together in such a way i thought it was really well done absolutely Mm -hmm. good movie yep i agree and uh what else did you see uh up next uh i saw re-engineering sam Mm -hmm. which uh is another link to indianapolis um all three of these uh, documentaries that I'm going to mention actually have links to Indiana, mm-hmm. um, which was, again, a special thing. Reengineering Sam is a documentary about uh, the race car driver and now race team owner, Sam Schmidt, um, who suffered a spinal injury in a uh, race car accident um, about 16, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he broke his neck and he became a quadriplegic. He only has the use of his head and neck. Um, he's bound to a wheelchair and, and everything. Um, it's about him, but it's also about, it's about how a team of scientists and engineers managed to outfit a Corvette, uh, to have Sam drive it. He literally drives a Corvette around the Indianapolis motor speedway with his head. (laughs) Um, it's just, it's a remarkable feat. Um, and it meant a lot to me because I was actually in attendance at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway during qualifications for the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500, mm-hmm. um, where they they actually put him on the track and he did laps around the Motor Speedway in this Corvette. And not only did he do laps, he hit like 153, 155 miles an hour oh, wow. in a Corvette without touching the steering wheel. And without touching the pedals. And I think the top speed for a vet is like 160, 165. So he was like topping out a Corvette with his head, with his brain. And that, like, as I was sitting there, I was like, holy crap, that's pretty wild. And, you know, there was a guy riding (laughs) with him over the loudspeaker telling us what was going on. And Mm -hmm. it was just, it was a pretty cool experience. I was like, wow, that's cool. And I I had heard of Sam Schmidt. I didn't know a lot about him, but, um, Obviously, the documentary meant a lot to me for that reason, by the fact that I got to actually experience part of it in real life. And and it's the IMS means a lot to me growing up in Speedway, and I've, mm-hmm. I've been to – I haven't missed a race since 1999. And so all those things together made it pretty special just on a personal level for me. Nice. Um, and, and I'm glad that it's also a pretty, a pretty good documentary. Um, it's really cool seeing – you know, they, they, again, there's multiple stories within this, this one documentary about how Sam Schmidt had his rise as a, as a race car driver and he was really just starting his career when this injury happened. Mm. Um, and despite the fact that he became a quadriplegic, he stayed in the racing world as a team owner and he's really successful as a team owner. Nice. Um, 
and he continues to be successful. So he didn't let his injury really debilitate him uh, as, as a person. He's still very successful now. Um, and just the story of his family and, and, and the engineering team and the scientists creating this car. It's just incredible that someone with this disability has the, the ability to not only drive a car, but drive a car at 150 miles an hour around a racetrack. That's just a remarkable thing. And it's, it's it's the first time it's ever been done. You know, people probably never thought anything anything like this could ever happen, and these people did it. So it's it's just a really cool story. And Sam Schmidt's a cool guy. His family's great. His his surgeon who is uh, depicted in this uh, was involved with this documentary. He's a really really interesting person, and it's it's just a great story. And I'm again really happy that I got to see it. And I'm actually I was actually got to experience some of the story in real life. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. And, uh, again, I hope it gets a wide release and people get to see it. It's a good movie. Nice. That's awesome. That's reengineering Sam. And, uh, what was the last documentary that you saw? The last one I saw, uh, was it's called when war comes home. Uh, it's about, um, a group of, uh, service members, uh, military members who are dealing with post post traumatic stress and uh the, the the mental and neurological injuries or difficulties with having survived a war um and it's linked to Indiana because one of the soldiers that's featured um lives in Anderson Indiana and is from right. Anderson Indiana um it talks about it, it it depicts these three soldiers about them getting out of the military and being out of the military, but still suffering all these mental and uh, neurological issues as a result of what they experienced in, in war. Um, and it's a very controversial topic right now. And it's very in the news and, and it's, it's an, it's an important subject right now as, as it should be. Um, and, and I think it's, I, I appreciated the documentary that it, it shined a light on a lot of the positive outcomes of researching this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, you hear, you hear about a lot of negative stuff. You hear about the fact that suicide amongst military members is at a shocking and disturbingly high number. Mm -hmm. Um, you hear about a lot of the troubles and the, the torture that these people go through basically. Um, but it's good to see that the three people depicted in this documentary, uh, are having success with dealing with their issues. And, and the, there's a lot of hardship too. And there's, they have setbacks and problems. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, but, uh, there's a lot of positive things and improvements that these soldiers experience. So it was really inspirational in that respect. Um, it also two out of three of the soldiers depicted, um, have service dogs that are kind of part mm -hmm. of their therapy, which I love dogs again, just on a personal level. I really loved how I, I, I'm just really touched by the fact that these people are getting better because of their relationship with a dog. Like that's just incredible to me. And I think that's incredibly touching and it's just a beautiful thing. And I, I, it's, I'm glad that it's gaining so much traction as a form of therapy. Lately, mm -hmm. because I, I can see why it's effective. Um, and so that part just really, again, on a personal level spoke to me and I, I really appreciated that. It's also just a really good documentary. They, again, they kind of 
talk about the all the hardships and and the bad stuff, but they they shine a light on on the positive things that the military and the government is doing to try to counteract all this all this uh, neurological damage that's being done to these service members. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to see that the army and Navy and air force and Marines are, uh, investing so much money in dealing with this because they owe it to these people to, you know, for their sacrifice, they owe it to them to give them, give them the ability to deal with the scenarios they put them in mm-hmm. and, and how to, how to deal with those after the fact. Um, and, and, I can say now that at this point, maybe not in the not in the past, but now, the government and the military is taking it seriously, and they're yeah. investing millions of dollars into it as they should be. And for for a lot of a lot of service members, it's working and it's having a positive effect. Um, I just hope they can get to a point where they can help everyone, and it's helping the entire psychological community, not just service members. Um, it's it's a great thing, and I thought it was a really interesting documentary. One thing I'll say though that really threw me was they had some kind of like reenactments of events uh yeah. that the soldiers went through um but the reenactments the reenactments were filmed with the actual people it was it was very odd that they had like these people who are suffering from neurological trauma you have them recreating moments where they're going through neurological trauma it was very odd. I really didn't understand it. I, yeah. I just thought it was an odd choice, and it, it seemed kind of disingenuous. Like I, I would have much preferred that they actually like hire actors and mm-hmm. have, you know, in the bottom right-hand corner, put reenactment. And right. as they're telling us the story, show us a reenactment. It was just very weird that they had, like, this actual soldier who threatened his wife with a gun doing a reenactment of threatening his wife with a gun. Like, what? Are you serious? It, I thought it was really odd and just kind of a, almost like in poor taste, I would say. <laughs> it just, it really threw me and I, I just thought it was odd. But other than those couple examples, it's like just a few minutes out of this documentary, I think it was really well done and, and a very cohesive and concise story. I think they did a good job other than that. Nice. I, I agree. I saw this as well. And actually I interviewed, uh, the director, Michael King, along with a couple of the subjects, uh, uh, Emmanuel uh, Bernadin, uh, which I'm pretty sure I mispronounced his name in the in the interview. Okay, um, but he was nice enough not to say it. And he also had his service dog there. Awesome, which was cool. And I also interviewed Andrea Carlisle, the woman from Anderson. Awesome. Yeah. So you'll hear that uh, after I go through my documentaries. But um, yeah, I agree about the reenactments definitely. But I I didn't have a problem with them or anything or I didn't I didn't take issue with them or it didn't register register with me because it was kind of juxtaposed with um like in that example um Andrea uh was she was telling her story like to the camera as well mm-hmm. and just like what what gripped me about it and I talk about this in the interview as well um was just how raw the story of these of these people and what they're going through like they shared it with the camera and it's you can see them share like every like they're bearing their souls about about what happened and what the how they dealt with the hardships that they had um just completely honest and straightforward and straight to the camera and it's really remarkable um how that was uh done um Yeah, so I, I enjoyed it and you'll hear an interview here in a bit, but I'm gonna, but first I'm gonna go through, uh, some of the documentaries I saw and then we can 
uh, kind of call it a night. Um, so first up is High School 911, which is a really interesting documentary and, and really interesting subject um, for them to cover. It's basically a documentary about the uh, it chronicles a year in the life of the only ambulance service in Darien, Connecticut, that just happens to be run by high school uh, teenagers. <laughs> so um, this was directed by Tim Warren, and uh, it it's interesting because the footage it was shot. Um, I think it was nine years ago. Um, so the actual like v- video is is um, not like super HD or anything, but the subject in the in the the stories that they go through is re- are really interesting. And when they say like when you hear like the, the this is the only ambulance service in Darien, Connecticut that is also run and it is run by high school teenagers. That's not like that's not to say like oh okay a bunch of teenagers volunteer to do the EMT stuff and you know um like as an actor after school activity it's no the entire organization the entire EMT service the ambulance service is run by teenagers wow it's like a whole organization like there are a couple like um there's some adults involved in it obviously but the entire from everything it's it's all teenager run and it's really interesting and Darien Connecticut is not a <laughs> is not like uh like 200 like 2000 people town this is this is a um this is a 2000 20,000 resident community jeez and that ambulance service this organization that it does it's um uh, it i mean it goes it's, it's called post 53 um it runs 365 days a year um when the like there's there are scenes of the kids in school and like the ones that are on call, if they, if their pager goes off, they immediately run out and they, they have the ambulance parked right outside the school and they go and they do their thing. Wow. It's, it's really remarkable and it's really fascinating. And it focuses on, um, several different characters or different subjects. Um, and at the, at the screening, they actually had, um, one of them since it was nine years ago, like, like he was talking about like, well, yeah, now I'm, um, he's, he's going into med school and all that stuff. It was just really kind of interesting to see. <laughs> to see that right um but yeah it was a really interesting documentary and you can find it on twitter at um it's at underscore high school 911 um it's really good i I really enjoyed it nice that's one that i'm i'm sad i missed and i think there was a lot of buzz about i think there were a lot of people like within the film festival a lot of people talking about this yeah oh yeah they actually added um a one or two screenings to it also and that was really cool i hope i get to see it Um, at some point yeah it was very it was very interesting cool um yeah and then the next one this was um uh, you know it's so hard to pick a favorite but (laughs) this documentary may be like like this was this was a very interesting documentary it was called it's called dramatic escape um directed by nick uh casted uh and it's basically a the plot summary is dramatic, uh, wow. Dramatic escape transports the viewer into the lives of a group of maximum security inmates at Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York as they attempt to mount a behind bars stage production of A Few Good Men. And this documentary was re- like, I'd be very fascinated to hear what you think of it, Tiny. Nice. Um, it is a really fascinating, uh, documentary. It's about, um, 
it's this group. It's not like this, this, a group of prisoners are just like, Hey, let's do a play guys. We don't have anything else going on. Um, it's like, it's a, it's a rehabilitation program that, that's, that is going on in, in the correctional facility. It's wow. called uh, rehabilitation through the arts. And in this case, like they have, they have people that have been involved in productions year after year, um, inmates and everything. And what really, what really, um, fascinated me about this was that you have subjects you have these these people these these people who committed crimes who they don't have any um they don't have any problem admitting yeah i murdered this guy wow um they're very open about it but they are involved in this creative endeavor this theatrical thing and it is very much a theatrical production which is just something that is that's fascinating and terrifying to me because all the things that are that come together to put together a play on stage a live performance is remarkable like the the amount of effort that goes into it is just astounding um and that's just all theater really wow and you complicate that by putting it in a prison and have it be all prisoner run and then um also like they they point out in the documentary that it's for a prison audience. So like, if they don't like you, they will let you know. There's yeah. not like a, there's not like a, like, um, there's, there's not like a, you know, they're not going to be quiet about it or anything. So you have to be on your game. Mm-hmm. And what really fascinated me was that these, these people, these subjects, these inmates, they are, since they're in this, this stage production program, like they have this inc- and they also have the time obviously that they've been serving to reflect on on who they are and why they're there and what they've done in their life and everything there are some amazing moments where these people just just tell the camera tell us as audience members just outlining like who they are what they've done why they're there and and they go into this really intense reflective mode where they talk about you know, just, it's not, it's not agenda driven or anything like that. It's purely just a sociological thing where they're talking about their experiences and, and how they've come to terms with it. There's a moment where one of the care, one of the subjects, he's talking about it and he's, he's talking about how he, how he, he murdered a man and he, um, he goes into this whole thing where he's like, I made his family victims. I made, he's a victim. I made his family victims and I made my family victim, uh, victim to it. And I made myself a victim to it because I did this thing. And, uh, like there's a moment where he's like, I can't even say his name. It's just like unbelievably raw and emotional. And it's just, it's incredible. It's really incredible. Um, and then there's also, it's juxtaposed with some, uh, kind of funny, weirdly funny moments. Um, there's like a whole sequence where like there's a whole there's a whole like scene where they are they're in the they're in the freaking yard of the prison mm-hmm. and you see like in the background throughout the entire sequence you see people working out playing basketball like like, like the epitome of like what prison on film is like the like right. you know really hardened criminals hardened criminals doing that and then you see people just running lines from a few good <laughs> men <laughs> it's just, that does sound really funny it's so funny situationally funny yeah and it's it's just it's really interesting and um you learn a little bit about each 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 person and it's funny because there's one person that i swear to god like and <laughs> i swear to god like the way that he talked talked about it like he was like he was saying like yeah i was you know i um 
I could have could have gotten into the drug game, but I decided to just be a stick up artist. And uh, you know, I only I only uh, went after people that were in that were in the game and everything. I'm like, this is freaking Omar Little from <laughs> The Wire. What the hell? <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just it was really amazing, and to see them all come together and put together this performance that, um, it, it was really it was really awe inspiring. It was really interesting, and uh, and I mean the acting that they showed from from the uh, stage was really really remarkable. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, and just also it's just there's kind of this there's they don't call attention to it or anything, but I I thought it was kind of interesting that like the production that they chose for that for that uh, for that season um, was a few good men. It's like yeah. it's such a weird. Uh, juxtaposition of you know prisoners putting on a few good men it's just it's really fascinating as a as a sociological experiment there wow that sounds um, really good it it was amazing and you can find information about it at facebook.com slash dramatic escape documentary okay um yeah and it was really good i i mean if it if it gets a release uh somewhere i will i'll buy it um nice. because it's it's really it's really uh pretty remarkable cool so let's see. So uh, next up, and and these next two will be brief, and then we can call a night here. Um, the next up is another prison, um, uh, prison focused documentary. It's called "They Call Us Monsters." Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so this is directed by Ben Lear, and uh, I'll read a quick plot description. Uh, in California, violent juveniles between fourteen and seventeen years old can be tried as adults. Typically, they are accused of heinous crimes, murders, and attempted murders that leave their victims' families shattered. And yet, they are still kids with a greater capacity for change and one day return to to society. Uh, behind the walls of the compound, three violent juvenile offenders are writing a movie as they await their trials. So, this documentary, um, I <laughs> I saw the first the first screening of one of my, one of my days at, uh, at Heartland, which was uh, like the last movie I saw before this was the day before. And I saw dramatic escape. So it was kind of interesting that that paid up that or, uh, paired up that way. Um, this didn't hook me as much as dramatic escape, mm-hmm. I'm afraid, but it was still interesting in, in and of itself. Um, the thing about it that kind of didn't resonate that well with me is that it kind of, like we're we're introduced to the idea of them of them writing this writing the screenplay. It's this program that this guy comes in and teaches them screenwriting, but it doesn't really go into like I kind of wish that there was more of an emphasis on that element of it. Like there's there's hardly any setup to it. It's just like you see um, the screenwriter come in and he's like he actually says to one of the one of the people I've never taught before, and then there's not really much much of any information about it and then you see him you know trying to trying to get them to you know work uh work on the screenplay and everything and it's it's interesting it's interesting you see some interesting things here and there um about their experiences and and um their life in in uh in in prison and it's it's interesting in and of itself there's one character that one or one subject of it that i just i i mean it's kind of unfair because these are juveniles. These are, these are between 14, 17 years old. So right. like they're teenagers and I mean, and they were, they're also incarcerated. So there's like a little bit of a, an expectation for them to not be, you know, likable or anything, but right. there's like nothing like, I mean, I could not like, there's one character that I like, or character, I keep saying character, one subject that I just, I just didn't like, I just, 
it was just like I couldn't find any resonance with him. I couldn't find any any way like any way in to to really care about his his journey throughout the documentary, mm-hmm. which is a shame because they uh, focus a little bit on his case and how he goes to trial. And this was a part of the documentary that I thought would have been was 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 a hands down the the best part of the documentary for me and i wish that there was more dealt with there i won't give away what happens or or what um the outcome is or anything but suffice it to say they had a his family had a lawyer that was working his case and then there's a there's a piece where uh, or there's a part of the documentary where they're like okay well this guy wasn't doing us any good preparing for the trial so we we went ahead and uh hired this new attorney who she's supposed to be really good and everything. And then like, there's just a quick cut to see that she is like, she's like, she's like a, uh, better call Saul type of attorney. Oh, like kind of like flashy, like, like ambulance chaser. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you can see, you can see like, that's not a good idea, guys. Right. And then like, as it goes through, like, like it made me kind of care about his, his situation a little more, but it also was like, I just don't, I can't really find a way in, in, into, uh, the story with this. Hmm. Um, I thought it was, so I thought it was okay. I just, I just, it didn't really perform as, as well as I was really hoping it would, uh, for me. And you can find more information about it at facebook.com slash they call us monsters doc. And, uh, okay, I'll round out this episode, really, (laughs) with, uh, Off the Rails, um, which is a documentary about every episode of The Obsessive Viewer. (laughs) Um, that's not, I'm stupid. You said that. I did, yeah. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Off the Rails is directed by Adam Irving, and it tells the remarkable true story of Darius McCollum, a man with Asperger's syndrome whose overwhelming love of transit has landed him in jail 32 times for impersonating New York City bus drivers and subway conductors. I thought that one sounded pretty cool. I didn't get to see it. It was it was really interesting. Um it was kind of kind of unique in the way that it showed how he like it depicted his love of transit and trains and and the transit system really well. And it was kind of kind of sad because he, I mean, he has, like, he, he is on the spectrum. He has Asperger's. So he has this obsessive love and encyclopedic knowledge of all things transit. That's what his, that's what calms him. That's his, that's his, uh, like, that's what he f- has a connection to in this world, essentially. That's the way it's depicted. And it's really captivating to see that. The problem is that, um, that uh compulsion is to commandeer these vehicles mm-hmm. like he just he like he is arrested obviously as according to the description 32 times um for like he com- like he hijacks a bus and Ooh. it's like he like and they show us they show a moment where he's at like the bus like the the bus yard where they park all the buses the bus depot and he's like he goes and he's like yeah yeah you can just go in there's no key or anything for it because it's because it's a public transportation so you just press a button and just go and it's not like he goes for a joyride or anything he goes and he does the routes he's wow yeah it's it's really it's really fascinating in that respect that's wild it is and uh what's what's frustrating or well what's interesting is that he uh like there's a moment like I'm throughout the documentary. I'm sitting there thinking like, well, why doesn't he just, you know, try to get a job yeah. there? Cause that would be, that would solve everything. But like, he can't like the trend, like the, um, 
the New York City uh, uh, Department of Transportation or whoever's hiring him, the MTA, um, finds him a liability and they can't, they don't want to hire him. So yeah. he has this compulsion to keep doing this commandeering, uh, like, like commandeering trains and, and buses. And he, as a result, he has spent a majority of his adult life in prison, um, for these crimes. And it's just, it's, it's really fascinating to see that, but also part of my, um, police upbringing, it just makes me like in my head throughout the documentary. I was just, I was just like, Man, just you know that just don't just don't do it. And <laughs> it's just I mean, come on, man. But it's it's really fascinating to reconcile that thought process with the fact that he has this condition that that makes it a a compulsion to him. Like right. it's really fascinating to uh to to watch and um, this is actually one of the, the documentaries that is on the uh, shortlist for the Oscars. It's for Oscar consideration. Um, Interesting. Yeah, as well as I believe USS Indianapolis is also okay. on that list as well. Cool. So yeah, so I, I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't the strongest documentary um, that that I saw, but it was really interesting and uh, I enjoyed it. And um, it was a really fascinating documentary. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I think that will about do it for us. Um, we're gonna throw it to. Before we go, here is my interview with the director and two of the subjects from When War Comes Home. And uh, after that, we'll wrap up and uh, call it a night, which I've said like four times. <laughs> okay, so I'm here with uh, Michael King, the director of When War Comes Home, and uh, two of the stars of the documentary, um, Emmanuel Bernadine and uh, uh, Andrea Carlisle uh, from Indiana, actually. So uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves or, or tell us about the documentary and how it, uh, how it came to be. Uh, my name's Michael King. Um, three years ago, I was invited to visit NICO, National intrepid center of excellence which uh, is a state of state of the art facility for service members that are suffering from post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury uh, some of the treatments are virtual reality music therapy art therapy therapy acupuncture and I, I was I met and interviewed with Spencer Milo who drove six hours from Fayetteville, Fort Bragg, to meet with me. And after meeting with Spencer, I, uh, I was so impressed that I needed to think about the film because it, actually it takes like three and a half years to make, so I needed to really connect internally with if I could be motivated to do this story and do it right. And uh, I found some things that, um, that inspired me. One, my father was in the Air Force for 40 years. The other, I grew up in a military town in New London, Connecticut, uh, where we have the submarine base and the Coast Guard Academy. And uh, this was actually the motivation for me to go ahead and want to give back. Even though I didn't serve in the military, I figure I, I could serve this way by telling and giving the service members a voice. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I, that resonates with me because I, my parents were both uh, in the Marine Corps. And so I kind of grew up in kind of a very uh, military-minded family. Like, they were, they were both uh, retired by the time when, when I was born. But uh, just it kind of 
was all a big big part of my upbringing was you know military focused stuff and uh, one thing that I really really admire about the documentary and really love about it is that it's it's about post traumatic stress but it it takes it puts such a human face on it and it, and it puts a uh, an emphasis on how it can um, affect people like like all all types of families and and what um like the spouses and the, and the families of the of the uh, soldiers and everything and that's just something that I thought was really poignant and and it resonated a lot and I thought that it was just a really fantastic documentary and uh so uh, how what was the biggest I guess uh struggle of putting putting it together like was it were there any like issues or um uh any interesting things that came up that that you incorporated into the into the documentary throughout it well, it's always difficult uh, making a, any type of film unless you have financing in place and uh, also uh, finding the right subjects. I, mean, I was very fortunate to have Andrea Kalau, who's written a book on the subject matter and who lives in Anderson, Indiana, and uh, and then finally Emmanuel, uh, who represented the U.S. U.S. Navy, and uh, who's African American, which gave me a uh, a little broader reach in terms of different services and diversity. Of course, nice. And uh, one of the big parts of the documentary was the service dogs, and it and uh, and just I, I like I I loved seeing how that. Um, how that I guess treatment would be would be the uh, word to use, but um, how that can be such an effective tool for um, for helping with with uh, with it and uh, and uh, so so could you tell us about about your service dog and your your uh, history with with um, having uh, having the service dog and everything? There's a really great kind of introdu- introduction to. Um, uh, to it, where there's a great moment where you talk about how you uh, how you got the got the dog. So, can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely, Matt. Uh, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me. Um, thanks for giving us the opportunity to help raise awareness on the issues that surround our veterans by promoting this film. Uh, this film is very very near and dear to me, uh, being that the time when Michael reached out to me, I was presently living, uh, you know, w- within uh, that darkness. I, I was presently in the, the the space of suicide I was I was actively dealing with depression um, and all I had at the time was my service dog uh, and it was a as you know filter free as you could have it you know because here I was dealing with all of this uh, all I knew was you know I had this dog and no one really cared for our story or our recovery or our, our therapy and then out the blue uh, a, a, an angel calls me and says hey you know a friend of yours from your therapy group called me and he talked to me about you and your dog. And if you would allow me to, I would like to help share your story. So for those that are presently going through what you're living with, that have a service dog or are curious about you know, getting a service dog to help change their life, if you would allow me to, I would please like to help share your story you know, to help inspire others. You know? And all I could truly say is, you know, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. 
That's that's fantastic. And and thank you so much for sending down an interview with me and everything. And um, and also thank you for your service as well. Um, that's it's obviously really appreciated. Um, and so. Uh, Andrea, you uh, spoke or you wrote a book about about every, uh, and I was kind of surprised when I when I saw in the credits. I was like, I'm gonna need to pick that up. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about about your experience with 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 writing the book and, and and about getting in touch with with Michael for the film? Sure, thank you, Matt, so much for having me as well. Um, I wrote the book. I started in uh, 2010, and I just started writing down my thoughts of what I'd went through. I apologize, 2011. And I just found that it was kind of therapy for me. So once I started writing, I just couldn't stop. And I never really intended it for be, to be a book because, you know, you're putting a lot of really, really, you know, tough, a tough subject out there that's very personal. And I didn't know how people would take reading that. And, and I didn't know how I feel about sharing that publicly. But through the process, I found that, you know, people need to know that they're not alone. And I wanted to be a voice for the spouse, because I think there's a lot of attention, and it's very rightfully so to the veteran. It's, it's needed. It's wanted. We need more. But also, this is a phenomenon that affects the spouse and children as well. And so I was wanted to write it from the view of what it was like to live with someone um, with PTSD that, you know, from the spouse's point of view. And so that, that was kind of my point. And I had a, a gentleman come up to me at my church and, sa- and say, you know, I really think you should get this published. And I was like, well, I'm not an author. <laughs> and so he said, well, really, I think you should. I think it's going to touch people's lives. And so I prayed about it, thought about it, and was like, well, you know, talk to my husband about it first. And he wasn't on board at first. But then he's like, if it helps one family, it's worth it, that we can take our experience and turn it into something good. Mm-hmm. And so Michael found the book somehow and called me up and I well, no sent me an email <laughs> and he said I'm Michael King from some some something and I mean weird winning filmmaker and I'm from Indiana so people from Indiana don't get calls like that so right. I thought it was a scam <laughs> and I ignored it mm-hmm. and then like two weeks later I like it came up again somehow and I was like oh maybe I will just call this number just for fun <laughs> <laughs> and I did and it was legit and I'm so honored and proud to be a part of this because it is so impactful so moving I mean he couldn't have done a better job of telling our story getting you know our point of view in there and um, you know I mean you see films and people could be exploited mm-hmm. and he just told our story in such a beautiful way and I, I'm sure the other cast members feel the same way and I just think it's going to make a huge impact and awareness for PTS I I agree completely I, I watched the film uh, last night and it was just it was just uh Heart-wrenching. Just the, just the. There was a rawness to the stories that, that you guys shared in in the film that just resonated so much uh, to me as a viewer. And it's just, it's definitely an important, an important subject and an important, uh, important topic to really get across to to a wide audience. And I'm I'm really glad that you guys that you made the film and that it's uh, it's it has the opportunity to be seen by by so many people and um having said that uh we're here at heartland film festival um is there are there plans for other film festivals is he going to be making the rounds on the festival circuit anymore or well we're leaving to after the screening tomorrow which is our u.s premiere to go to the new york city for the uss intrepid 
to have our world premiere. So we're very excited about that, especially Andrea. <laughs> we can't stop talking about it. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> Anyways, and then, uh, and then right after that, we're going to West Point, Emmanuel and I, uh, to screen for the cadets up there. And then we'll be screening at various uh, VSOs, film festivals, and uh, museums, military museums. And uh, so another six months of traveling. Sure. And then then we have a release, a video-on-demand release that's going to happen on Veterans Day. Oh, that's fantastic. uh, November 11th. So if you go to our website, www.whenwarcomeshome.com, Org, you can pick up the details on the video on demand release. Perfect. And I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes and I'll put everything, all the pertinent information. And uh, as we're winding down, what is, what is your guys' uh, what have, what is your ex- guys experience with Heartland Ben? How, how have you guys felt about the festival um, and all that? <laughs> well, I love it. I've never been to a festival, a film festival. I've been to festivals, but sure. blueberry, <laughs> strawberry, but never a film festival. Sure. Um, so I'm amazed. It's just... The way they just everything is just the top top notch and um, just very friendly and everyone just makes you feel you know special and so I encourage everybody to come out to this. This is absolutely fantastic. Nice. Uh, this is Bronze and I's actual first film festival. Uh, the the welcoming has been you know, I can't compare it to anything else I've ever experienced before. Um, this is truly a, a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, not just that, but. To one to attend a film festival, but you know, I think the capstone on top of that is actually being a part of a film mm-hmm. that's in a film festival. Um, that I truly believe in what the film delivers, and I truly believe in everyone that's involved in the film. And to be a part of a film that has that much power mm-hmm. on a platform such as Heartland, that has such a large footprint, I couldn't ask for any bigger of a blessing. That's great. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down and, and chatting with me. And uh, best of luck with the film and with, with everything uh, going forward. And, uh, yeah, have, have a great rest of the festival. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And that about does it for our Heartland 2016 um, episode. And, uh, Tiny, what are your overall thoughts on Heartland? Again, it's an incredible event that I'm just impressed with how well it runs, and they get some fantastic movies. Um, again, there's probably 20 movies that I'm really bummed I didn't get to see. Me too. Um, next year, last year I only saw like three, two, three movies. This year I saw uh, six or seven. Mm-hmm. Next year I'm hoping to take at least... Fifteen. <laughs> next year I'm hoping to take at least a day or two off during nice. the week. Uh, and then including the weekends, I'm hoping I can hit 10 or so, if not nice. more. Um, just cause every year I'm like, man, I wish I would have seen this and seen this and seen this. So it's just a great event and it's, it's worth taking vacation days to go see movies. So absolutely. They did a great job. I'm looking forward to next year. Do you, uh, do you want to hear something funny? Sure. I don't think you're going to see any of them next year. I know. Because it is from October 13th to uh, the end of the next week. That so. is the worst timing possible. <laughs> exactly. I'm getting married and October 14th next year. I don't know what your honeymoon situation is like, <laughs> but I don't know if you'll be available. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe that'll be our honeymoon is going to Heartland. Uh, yeah. I, it I has will... the word heart in the title. Right. <gasps> Love. Ooh. 
and hearts. Well, I already know my gift to you is going to be your press pass. <laughs> nice. nice. Awesome. <laughs> Save a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. And mm-hmm. thank you so much to everyone involved at Heartland. I had it, Absolutely. it was just great time. Yep. I had a great time too. And uh I took I took the whole week off, but I just got so bombarded with other with other like I got wasn't feeling that well at the end. So hopefully next year I can really, really tackle it and 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 uh really uh really take it by storm. Nice. So um having said all that, we're gonna throw it to the pre recorded outro. But once again, just so you guys know, you can find all of the links and everything to the movies we discussed and and uh more information about Heartland itself in the show notes of this episode, which once again is also can also be found at uh obsessiveviewer.com slash OV one ninety one. And before we go, just a quick reminder that uh I have a solo side project podcast that is not included in the pre recorded outro you're about to hear. It's called Anthology. It's a podcast exploring science fiction and anthology storytelling beginning with the twilight zone and currently i'm doing bonus episodes reviewing black mirror including the new season that just premiered on october 21st so having said all that tiny um what are we doing next week uh i think we're in order in honor of the election we're going to talk about presidential fictional presidents yes (laughs) or depending on uh how the election shakes out post-apocalyptic movies (laughs) um All right. Uh, Having said all that, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Sorry, I forgot. I just did that. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Uh, the more ratings and re- reviews we get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes and search results. And if you want to show your support with your wallet, uh, you can either click the donate button in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com for a one-time donation or a recurring donation. Um, or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where you can choose from several different reward tiers. Uh, the fine folks over at Midwest, uh, over at Midwest podcast network, they did that in that they're now sponsoring, uh, our episodes, uh, their Westworld FM podcast is now sponsoring us. So, uh, go check that out. If, uh, go check that out, that podcast out. <laughs> and, uh, also, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and any donations made will help pay the fees to keep the podcast running and uh and uh, so that we can continue to provide you with um our weekly podcast thank you for listening to the obsessive viewer presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find more of our episodes at ovpodcast.com and you can subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher or your preferred podcast app the Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loudlike from their EP Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes and like their Facebook page at facebook.com slash loudlikemusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can email the hosts individually at matt, tiny, or mike at obsessiveviewer.com or send an email to the podcast in general at podcast at obsessiveviewer.com. Check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where we post movie and TV reviews and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer and follow us on Twitter at obsessiveviewer, at obsessivetiny, and at IamMikeWhite. If you want more obsessive content in your life, check out our sister site obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. 
Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Again, thank you so much for listening. We love you. Be excellent to each other.